Okay, so before we get started with this show, I just wanted to take a moment to thank everybody for the amazing outpour of support that you've been giving the show. I'm, uh, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm, I'm astounded. I'm astounded. I, I thought that when I put this out, it would mostly be for me and maybe my mom, but wow, people must have been hungry for a middle-aged guy with a decidedly non-radio-friendly voice asking his friends a bunch of questions. I was not expecting this, I gotta say. Anyway, I just, before we get started, I wanted to take a moment to just, oh, I haven't gotten, I haven't gotten to read all this uh, mail that I've been getting about the show, but I wanted to flag a few and, and quickly respond to them. Uh, Mikhail in Cincinnati. This is a good question. Uh, the answer is yes, but with reservations. And then we have Miranda or Miranda. I think it's, I'm going to go with Miranda. Miranda in St. Paul. Hang on, just finish reading it. Uh, yeah, that sounds like, I think that sounds like a, a great idea. I, uh, I have to check into the legality of it. I don't know if it's, well, I'll, I'll Google it and uh, I might implement it later on. Right, thank you. This is a great idea. Thank you. And then finally, we have Rocco from nowhere. He didn't put a, an address. Okay. Um, uh, same to you. Same to you. All right, then. Uh, well, I am still working on a theme song, so I'm going to play that. I'm going to play something now. I'll be as surprised as you, whatever it sounds like. Uh, and then we'll get the show going. that well it's a work in progress anyway on today's episode i uh i'm sharing a conversation that i had with jessica ellis an independent filmmaker who also happens to be one of the best people on twitter uh that's uh, not an opinion it's an empirical fact backed up by multiple double-blind studies uh i can include the citations in the show notes she is a much uh better um uh spoken uh, person she's a much better spoken person than me so i probably should just i'll just go to the interview how about that jessica ellis how are you i'm doing good how are you I'm doing pretty good. It's very, very happy, very excited to, to finally meet you. Oh yeah, me too. Me too. We've been we've been mutuals on Twitter for years. Yeah, yeah, long time. And I've, I always make time to read your opinions about movies or the industry. I just think that you really have an adept understanding of how this stuff works. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I think I definitely have a an unusual perspective on film. Unusual how? Well, I kind of, I, I am, I've never been a diehard film person. I kind of wandered into the profession gradually from other, I started, I started as a performer and then I was in theater and I got my first degree in playwriting and, and then kind of wandered into movies. So, I mean, although I loved and watched movies my whole life, like I, I did not grow up indoctrinated in kind of the film world. So I always feel like I have a bit of an outsider opinion on it. Oh, well, I would never have guessed that because you seem to me to have a very, uh, what's the best way to put this? Uh, 
an understanding of what makes good cinema. Well, thank you. <laughs> a lot of times, you're an independent filmmaker. You're, you're, you have a, you have yeah. a movie coming out. I'm, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But uh, a lot of times when, I, when you see independent filmmakers, I, I feel like they're coming at it from a literature point of view, mm-hmm. where they're doing a lot of talk and talk, and, and they're trying to figure out how they can make a book into a movie. Right. And every time I hear you talk about film, about the things you want to do with film or the things you like in other films, it feels very movie centric. Film is its own medium. It's visual and sound and editing. And you just seem to have a good grasp of that. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I think I know what I like. <laughs> I, I wouldn't uh, venture to say I know what is, is actually good, but I think I know what I like. I guess maybe, maybe I'm biased in that. I tend to share a lot of your opinions. There we go. See, now that's the key. <laughs> that, that's who everybody thinks is smart, is the person who agrees with them. Right. How, like, how are you? What are you up to these days? Right now, let's see. Um, after spending all of 2020 kind of in total writer paralysis, I suddenly have exploded this year with new ideas. My writing partner and I have written two features since the year started, which is we write a lot, like we're, we're productive, but that's insane. I mean, they're both vomit drafts. They're both, <laughs> they're not in good shape. So to get to the, from the beginning to the end of a story, no matter how vomity the draft is. You want to explain what a, a vomit draft is? Or? A vomit draft is sort of like, uh, the way it works for us is that we get an idea, we kind of work through it together, we get an outline out that basically says, like, here are all the scenes in the movies. Like, our outlines are not 20 pages, our outlines are like three pages. And then we have done this enough times that we know that as we're writing, we're going to run into more things that we haven't been able to visualize in the outline and stuff like that. So we just kind of go uh, and... And write it according to the outline, but allow room to develop. And what you end up with, especially with two writers that can't be in the same room together, is at the end a total mess where character voices are inconsistent and you've come up with themes that don't connect backwards to anything because you came up with them on page 60. That's what we call our vomit draft. That's sort of our first draft that we show to no one. And we kind of sit with and are like, all right, what do we like in here? Who is hitting this in a way we like better. And then we start conforming the voices, the the two of our voices into one story. And we start conforming the story into something that makes sense start to finish. Really interesting. How do you divvy up the work? Uh, The way we normally like to work, it it actually depends on genre. Comedy, we prefer to be in the same room at all times uh, when we're working on it. But with anything else, usually we will try to write the first couple of scenes together. And since we're, you know, not able to see each other right now, we just talk through the first couple of scenes. So we're really clear on what those are. So we have sort of a stable uh, shelf to jump off of. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of split it up according to who's excited about what section. Okay. If somebody's like, oh, I really, really want to write this scene, we tend to give each other that. And then we just kind of divvy up whatever is left so that we have an approximately equal amount of pages. And then we sort of trade back and forth. Like I'm writing page one to 15 and then he's got 15 to 19 and then I've got 20 to 24 and, and we, we write in order so we can see what the other person has done before us. Okay. And who is he? Who, who is your writing partner? My writing partner is Nick Sinnott. Uh, he is, he's an Emmy award-winning visual effects artist, but he was the year before me in grad school. Uh, and we met later on Twitter and just became best friends and started writing together within a couple of months. We wanted to 
to write together. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Twitter is an interesting place. It is all of Dante's Inferno, heaven and hell. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So that's fascinating. I could spend all day just hearing people tell, tell me about their writing processes. How do you come up with the initial outline? Is it just talking through a story or do you like have, like I always happen to use, I use the Dan Harmon's story circle to map out something before I even begin doing anything. That's impressive. I can't understand that thing. I am, I am jealous of anybody who can think in that, that detailed of a structure. I don't know. For me, it's not detailed. It's, I'm jealous of people who can sit down and start writing without knowing exactly where they're going. Yeah. We, you know, we have a, a strong enough intuitive sense of like, okay, so what needs to happen in this story to make it dramatic? Like we know roughly what we need to know before we get started. We know where it begins. We know what the midpoint is. We know what the end is and where the twists are. And we know what the character's journey is. We have all of that. And that just comes through conversation. That just comes through conversation. Yeah. I, I mean. Well, that, that might be, if I can interrupt, that might be the difference is that I don't have anyone to have conversation with. When I do a story circle, I'm kind of having conversation with me. Yeah. Well, I mean, we both still write on our own as well. And I think we kind of both do it the same the same way ourselves too, is, is that it's always a, like an out loud process. Like I will just talk to myself in the shower until I get the beats of an idea out. But yeah, our outlining process gets, it starts very vague and then we just make it more and more detailed. But I don't think either of us, maybe Nick a little more than me, are the kind of people that can like fully see the story from the outline. Like I need to see the script because I need to start hearing the characters talk and figure out who they are and what they're interested in and how they speak. And I can't do that till I'm writing dialogue. So do you find yourself writing a character then realize, oh, this is completely wrong. This person would never do that. Yeah. it It's a process of increasing specificity. Like, you know, one of our, our one of the two we've written this year, like our, our, main character is a decorated astronaut and initially it's like okay so we know who she is we know she's mad at nasa and she's retired and we know she has to get dragged back in and 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 everything like we know generally what her arc is and then it's a thing of like well why is she mad and what would drag her back in and what would be the process for her in moving forward in her life and it just gradually tightens and stuff like I find I find like letting that character interact with other people just as you're writing the scene like you end up revealing more to yourself about who that is in how they react to other people and how they respond to different approaches from other people so really it's it's like putting our little sims in a sandbox and letting them play and watching it happen. It feels very passive in some ways. Ah, that's really interesting. That's a really cool way to look at it. These are your characters and they're in a box and let's see what they do. Yeah. So uh, what are these two uh, movies? I mean, you can be very, you have, you see, you said the one is about a female astronaut is the other. But uh, well, yeah, one is a, one is an action thriller that actually <laughs> at the end of last year, it was a finalist in the Netflix Imagine Impact. No way. For real? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then it didn't, it didn't move forward, which we were heartbroken about. And we were like, well, fuck it. We're writing it anyway. So it's a, it's an action thriller set on the international space station. Kind of an Agatha Christie mystery in space. Agatha Christie in space? Yeah, it's like a, something something goes wrong on the space station and a bunch of people have to go up and figure it out and everybody has ulterior motives and everybody has secrets. How did that not immediately get picked up? You know, <laughs> someday when I'm not afraid of industry people listening to me on podcasts, I will go into the full story of 
how that all went down. Uh, but it was strange. And then the other one was a, an idea that I generated and, and I talked through with Nick, but it, since it came so much from me, I wrote the first draft of it and then he's coming on to rewrite and work on it with me, which is how we've worked we're like that a, a few times before. And it, it does work. Okay. It's about a, a woman whose husband has died and she loses essentially everything that she owned and finds out she has no money and moves to a small seaside town where they had just bought a kind of broken down cabin that they were going to fix up. That's all she has. And uh, starts seeing a sea monster in the water. Oh, see, I wasn't expecting that. That made a, that made a turn when I thought it was going to go keep going straight. Yeah, kind of. It's sort of a like colossal, but about grief and about learning to understand your levels of grief and your own under your own feelings. So, so that's my weird. That one I'm hoping will be my my second film. I keep hearing you talk about your movies. What's it like? Four years now? Is that how long we've been? something like that? More maybe? Yeah, maybe more. I've just been waiting. What light? Wait. What lies west has been coming forever, and I was like, I can't <laughs> wait to see her movie because I was like because all your ideas sound so interesting I, I can't wait to see the way they get implemented so I'm really excited for the new movie to come out but I love like I what I'm even more excited about is for you to just get successful so that I can watch some of the other movies that you talked about <laughs> yeah it would be nice it would be great uh movie one nearly killed me so you know I'm hoping movies two through ten are a, a little bit easier you tweeted about this amazing female pirate story. <laughs> and I just want that movie so bad. Can you, can you remind me what it's like, what it was like? Uh, yeah, it, it's a pilot actually, although I have a female pirate movie too. I, uh, female pirates have always been an interest of mine. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's true based on a true story about, uh, the pirate queen of Ireland, uh, Grania or Grace O'Malley. She's more commonly known as in America. She was a contemporary of Queen Elizabeth she threw, well, her first husband died. She remarried and threw her second husband out of his castle and seized all his lands. And she became a clan chief in Western Ireland and created a fleet that was so deadly that for 70 years after her death, the English were terrified to go near it. You know, and it's it's not really, t you hear about Elizabeth, you hear about Mary, Queen of Scots, who was also a contemporary, but, all, but Ireland was also essentially being run by a woman trying to throw off the yoke of, of English oppression. And she's, you know, my, my family is originally from that part of Ireland, like that, that's somebody I've heard stories about all my life. And I, interestingly, it was a script I didn't want to write because my big script coming out of grad school was a pirate movie. It was about Anne Bonny and Monty, uh, Mary Reed. Uh, and when Nick and I started working together, he pitched this idea and I was like, no, no more pirates, no more pirates. And he was like, come on, like, it's a great story. He's right. Yeah, he's right. It is. It is. I was just like, I just don't want to be the pirate lady. Um, yeah, worse things to be in the world than the pirate lady. But yeah, it's a script. The script is called Maelstrom. It, it's a pilot about her husband dying and her initially choosing to refuse to marry and go back and try to lead her own clan. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a script we love and we'd love to get made somewhere. And it's gotten us a lot of traction, but historic shows, expensive historic shows, very rarely bought from from uh, newer writers. Right, right. That's why we need to, we need to get you famous otherwise first, and then we can tell that Exactly. One. That's the plan. The, boy, do I have a backlog for when that happens. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned something like that. You were a fellow to the Blacklist. What was it? Say it smarter than me. 
It was the uh, the Blacklist Women in Film Feature Fellowship. Okay. Um, which was a week long like residency with five other women where we did a ton of seminars and meetings and generals and we each got in with the script and it was just sort of a workshopping. You didn't generate a new script from that. No, it was it was on an existing script. It was very funny because everyone else had extremely dark, serious scripts. They were great scripts, but they were really, really uh, very dark. One was about um, the creation of the uh, Madame Tussauds and the French Revolution, and one was about a doomed aviator. And I had written a script about the Rockettes fighting the Nazis. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I stood out slightly in that group. I would watch that movie too. Not necessarily in a great way. Oh, uh, well, I don't know. In, in my way. One of the things that I, well, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've always, I, I've been, not just a friend of yours on Twitter, but like a fan of yours on Twitter is you're so fucking funny. Oh, thank you. Oh, you have a, you have a really, I don't, say, not, I don't want to say a dark sense of humor, but you do have a dark sense of humor, but you have a, uh, a way of looking at the world. That's, I don't know, I guess, again, it's like, it's closer to, to me, to what I like that you like, you have, you come with it with like, a, like an, a, an acerbicness. Yeah. I'm a bit of a fencer, yeah, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think I was funny before Twitter, or, or at least I didn't know how to be funny before Twitter. The medium helped craft me into a funny person just because you get live feedback about what jokes are working. That's interesting. Yeah, I, but I, I certainly, I had never written comedy before I did t Twitter, and I had never, I mean, I, I think I was always sarcastic and, and, and tried to be funny as much as a normal human being, but like... right. It was not a focus, so it was cool to have the medium unlock that unlock that skill for me. Yeah, really. I mean, I think the only reason why I'm having a podcast right now is because I means tested my personality on Twitter. Yeah, you know what I mean? like I feel like oh, I I think I know who I am as a. It sounds ridiculous, but I mean, I think I like I I know how to present myself a lot better than I used to because I have my voice on Twitter. Isn't that the, I mean, that's what we're always looking to do as artists is like find our voice and our, our authentic voice. And it's really nice to have people be like, okay, these are the parts of your voice that work by liking and retweeting your stuff because no one will tell you that. And I think that's deep down what we want is for a mentor or a teacher to be like, here is what you're good at and here is what you're bad at. And no one will ever do that for you, but Twitter will. I have a very complicated relationship with Twitter. You may or may not have have get, have gleaned from my timeline. Uh, but for all of the bad aspects of Twitter, there's so many good ones. Like the fact that I'm talking to you is a great one. I have made all of these friends. I have seen into all of these like perspectives that I never would have before. Mm -hmm. And then also this, getting to workshop a voice, getting to workshop a sense of humor. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I have a complicated relationship with the website. Yeah, it's very toxic and bad. Like, there's no question. Like, there's horribly toxic and dangerous elements on there. But, like, there's also extraordinary people constantly to find. And, yeah, I, I, I also have a complicated relationship. Well, I mean, I can't imagine how any woman with a, an opinion doesn't have a complicated relationship. Yeah, there's there's definitely that aspect of it. There is a. I remember there was a a, a tweet the other day that you made. I'm going to butcher it, but you essentially said, "Here's here. Oh, here's some writing advice. If you're ever having a problem writing, they are never expecting a koala." And that was a really funny joke, and I, I laughed at it. And then I saw some dude 
responded and was like, well, here's some better advice. Yes. <laughs> grab your, grab the, the audience member by the, by the collar and don't let them go. And it was like, what, the, who the fuck are you? Like, what is this? Why would you ever say that? It is astonishing the degree to which, and, and not to generalize, generalize, but it's generally men, uh-huh. okay. feel comfortable correcting strangers who are not saying anything bad. Like, it's one thing if someone says something, you know, borderline terrible in, in some social direction and you're like, hey, that's not cool. But if someone is saying something totally harmless... I don't understand the need to correct them. They're not hurting anybody. They're not putting a bad idea out in the world. Why are you taking time of your day to correct them? You're being kind by saying correct. <laughs> a lot of times it's it's not correcting. Like at least that's a good example. A lot of times it's just people responding with their own opinions as though it's fact. Yes. Oh, see, you're wrong about that because this is what I think. Well, I don't, I don't yes. give a fuck what you think. What is that? What does that have to do with me? Uh, I don't. I think I get that stuff a little bit, and I'm a guy, a white guy, so I can't imagine how much you get it. It just must be incessant. I mean, yeah, it's every day, almost every. Day. It's become worse, especially the weird joke correcting thing that's been going on, which I'm. I saw a tweet from another day and I can't remember her name, the comedian who said it. She's amazing. And I, I apologize for not crediting her that said, um, I, until Twitter, I didn't know my jokes had answers, <laughs> <laughs> which is genius. Cause it's true. Like, and I think isolation has made it worse and the, the quarantine has made it worse. But like, I can't imagine comedy clubs after this where someone will tell a joke and like everyone in the audience will respond with their better version of the joke or why the joke is not realistic in premise. And it's just like, what, who talk like who taught you to converse? This is insane. This is not how you respond to things. So I kind of view it a little bit like when you're driving. I've never given the finger to somebody in real in regular life, except through the windshield of my car or like the, the window of yeah. my car. There's something about the distance between you and that person, the, the remove, that gives you the sense that you can do all this shit. Well, and all, I think that's totally true. And I also think it has to do with what we think of our computers and our, our interaction with the internet is for, which is total self-gratification. I mean, you can look at anything you want to look at at any second of the day. You know, you can't just look at cat pictures. You can look at specific cat pictures. Like I only like orange cats. Yeah. When we see things that are outside of our perspective, there can be a reflex of like, well, I didn't ask for that. That's not exactly to my taste, so that must be wrong. And I think that's where a lot of the toxicity on Twitter oh, yeah. that is not you know, racist and sexist comes from, is this, this egocentric focus that we are bred into understanding how the internet works. That is a really interesting point. I never considered that. I'm going to chew on that for a little bit. I, I sometimes think, and I'm sure that I have done this, I try to keep my reply guy behavior to a minimum. Like, I know I'm always coming into people's uh, mentions, and I hope I'm not explaining jokes or, like, restating the jokes. I I always try to go in with, like, a, I'm a, I have 11 years of improv experience in my past, so I always go in with, like, a yes and kind of attitude. 
but I don't also that I don't think that's always welcome. I've yes ended some jokes and then people will be like, I didn't ask for you to do that. Yeah, it's tricky. I've never noticed you doing that. Like I, I have always really enjoyed our interactions because you're funny. And I think well, that's part of it is like you gotta be funny if you're gonna try to yes and people who are funny's right. jokes. But yeah, it's also, you know, it's mood, it's Usually when people post a joke, what they want is you to laugh. You know, that's why most people tell jokes is they don't want to hear your version of the joke. <laughs> they, they want you to say, ha ha, or nothing. And I, I think between comedians and between funny people, and I think especially if you come from an improv background, there's also a thing of like, it's more fun when we play together, like we can play it. And it's- That's how I respond. That's how I respond to it. If I think you, if you say something funny and I hit the heart button, that's very unsatisfying. That does not do enough for me. I want to tell you, like, <laughs> I want to say that you spark something in me and shoot something back. It's my uh, gut response that like, oh, I like that. Let me, let me play with you. Yeah. And I think a lot of writers have that response. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm the same way. And then sometimes it works and sometimes it does. I think it's just a case by case thing. It's such a weird medium, man. Nobody knows how to act. We don't have societal rules for it. We can't even get people to not be Nazis on it. Like it's, there's just, it's the wild west. What a, what a low line that we can't step over. Right. Yeah. So the, the infractions are many. And also because tone is so difficult, easy to blow things way out of proportion. It is not a perfect medium for understanding. It's a great medium for talking. Right. It's not a great medium for people understanding what you're doing. And another thing is like, if you say something funny, and then I write something back, and then you don't get back to me. Like, oh, I hope I didn't piss off Jessica. <laughs> like, right now, we can talk to each other, and I get immediate feedback. But even if you thought something was funny, and you take an hour to get back to me because you have a life, I might spend that hour being like, oh, I'm an asshole. Jesus Christ. Not just you, but everybody. Like, I just, I feel like the, the, the amount of time that it gives you to think about the dumb shit that you say <laughs> is uh, dangerous. It's true. It's it's absolutely true. I try to be a prolific liker of of tweet of like replies. Like I try, I try very hard to like. And but I also will. I will targetedly not like things that I don't think are like. I know won't necessarily start screaming at somebody unless they really they really piss me off. But like I will just be like, we will both pretend you didn't say that and <laughs> and move on and not like it. That's kind of what I do too. Like I, I a lot of times I like stuff as a recognition. Like, I hear yeah. that. I hear you. And then if I really think something funny, I will actually type back an LOL or a heart or something. Then, yeah, sometimes somebody says something and it's like, mm, I don't like where that's going. I'm just going to skip on past. I mean, it's just so complicated because Twitter is a conversation with your close friends, but also everyone else in the entire world and also anyone who could possibly hire you and also probably your exes and your mom. My parents read my tweets now, which is... Posterity? Yeah. Yeah. Like they're going to be with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like, but it's also a conversation with people you really know and love and want to be able to talk with honestly and authentically and like... That's where we seem to all get into trouble. Right, right. Tell me, I want to, so now I want to hear about What, what Lies West. This movie is coming out in, you said- May. It's coming out in May. Coming out in May. I'm a very slow editor. So by the time I do this, it might you might already be in promotion mode, right? Yeah, we're starting at the end of March. So do you have a real, so you, that's a terrible way of phrasing it. Do I have a real distributor? Yes, yes, Let me rewrite, let me reset that because I don't want to say, I don't want to make <laughs> it's it. It's a fair question. Do you have- 
a distributor? Yes, yes, we do. Uh, we're working with Passion River, which is an amazing distribution company. They do a lot of documentaries, a lot of family stuff, um, and, and a lot of just really everything they put out is good. Uh, and that's what sold us. We had a few offers and like, it was just like, these are not movies that are winning Oscars. They're tend to put out independent films. Although some of their documentaries get nominated. Okay. Everything they put out is quality and by good rising filmmakers that are interesting and, and have unusual perspectives. And like, that was just for us. Like, yeah, we want to be with them. That's who we want to, where we want to be. We, you know, we might, maybe we'd get more flashier stuff if we went with, with a different one, but like we want someone that really cares about what they put out. So you have a distributor. How much of this time that I've been waiting to watch you to watch your movie has been you looking for a distributor? A while. Really what held us up in, in the movie was finished in 2019, mostly. You mean finished post-production or finished filming? Production production finished in 2018. We spent about a year in editing because my editor is a Netflix editor and we only got him like one day a week okay. that we'd have all day to work. So it took a while. And then we went out to festivals in 2019 and 2020. But the thing that was holding us up was music rights. Music rights absolutely killed us because, you know, I had an amazing line producer with a ton of experience on set, but she's not a post-production expert. My husband is the other producer and he, he, he is not a post-production expert. This was his first feature. I had no idea what I was doing. So it was the three of us kind of grasping in the dark, trying to figure out how do we get giant music corporations and big bands to talk to us and like even to find out what would it cost? Like what would the terms be? It was so hard um, and we didn't have the budget for a music supervisor. So this was all on us. So that took the bulk of 2020 to figure out. And as soon as, and, and distributors don't really want to see your stuff until you've got the rights locked because they don't want to risk losing tracks that they really like. And, and, and they want you to know, you know, that you've got your, your stuff together. So after that was done, we started submitting to distributors and I had a friend reach out who worked in distribution with a program at Sundance. And she said, Hey, why is your movie not out yet? What is going on? Her name is Liz Manichel. She's an amazing writer director herself. And I was like, I don't know, Liz, like, I don't know how to do this. Like I'm blind submitting things, but nobody's talking to me. And she's like, all right, I'm going to get involved. And within like three weeks, we had multiple offers, um, just from her sending an email to people being like, Hey, watch this movie. You will like it to contact the two. And that is unfortunately how anyone gets anything done in this town. But Liz, Liz and I's relationship came around organically. Like we became friends on Twitter. Mm -hmm. She hired me to do a rewrite on one of her movies. She hired me and Nick for that at the beginning of 2020. And like, I had asked her for distribution advice and festival advice early on. Cause she knew how to do that. And you know, it was really an organic connection that came out of doing favors for each other. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, also it makes sense that as a writer who has a million times gotten rejection letters from cold Cold uh, submission. Cold submissions. Thank you. I hate this. This is true, but people need filters. There's too many things out there. Too many things. Like even just somebody saying, "Oh, this person's good. Read that." Yes. Or even or or knowing that somebody that you like liked something. There has to be something because there's just an avalanche of material to weed through. And sometimes you hear stories about people who are like they just picked up their script off the submission desk and like, "Oh, this is great," but that almost never happens. Well, I think about it like how, yeah, like how we look at 
at how you look at like Netflix or Amazon where there's 700,000 movies and like the one you're going to watch is probably the one that someone has said to you, oh, hey, I really liked this movie. Like that's all it is. It's something that gives you insight into this huge sea of content. Like it's not necessarily like, I don't know, I guess it is preferential treatment in a way, but it's also just like, I need some kind of a compass in this because this is too overwhelming to look at everything equally. As opposed to nepotism, which is your dad was a successful filmmaker, so you're going to get in, you're going to have a a leg up when you start your career. As opposed to that, it's kind of a merit-based system. Like you talk to a bunch of people, you work with a bunch of people, people get to know what you think. So then they're more likely to like pass your information along to somebody. Sure. Like if right now I all of a sudden was able to produce a movie, I would immediately be like, I want to see one of Jess's screenplays. And that is based on merit, knowing the things that you've done. So I can imagine why it happens. Yeah, it's just a business that works that way. And and it's something that you always feel a little ethically uncomfortable with, but uh, more desperate to get work <laughs> than uncomfortable. So, so uh Tell me about the movie. Tell me what the movie's about. So the movie is a coming-of-age drama slash adventure about uh, a college girl who takes a summer babysitting job with a very sheltered teenage girl who has a very anxious single mother. And the two are nothing alike and start to bond over really wanting a big change in their life and a big adventure in their life and decide to sneak away to take a multi-day hiking trip to the California coast together. So it's it's really a movie about female friendship. It's a movie about overcoming anxiety, a lot of stuff that's really important to me. And it's very sweet. And the girls are unbelievable. Is it a personal film to you, I assume? Incredibly. Yeah. I shot it in my hometown, which is always in Santa Rosa, California, and it, around Sonoma County. And uh, and the two leads are both my nieces, who oh. are both actors, and and who were just astonishingly good. So it's very personal. I can't wait to see it. It's been on my on my list for a long time. So every <laughs> time you mention something about, it, I always like retweet it or like it or make some comment or something. So that's like I, I get like excited. You, I appreciate it. You, you are the lifeblood <laughs> of this film. But, you know, it's it's such a small movie, and and the idea that I even was able to pull it off is still so unfathomable to me, especially with some of the things that happened in the midst of filming it. I'm, I'm just thrilled that anyone wants to see it. That makes me so happy. I've made a couple movies with my friends back in New Jersey, back in the day, and that's fucking hard. I feel like being in the middle of the ocean and not knowing which way you're supposed to swim. Yeah, <laughs> but that's kind of freeing, don't you think? Like, I mean, it was fun. We had fun while it was happening. I guess I think part of it is because we were we were younger and we could we could fuck off life a little bit easier. I would definitely go about it differently if I was going now. It's just so such an overwhelming process. It is. It's enormous. It's it's kind of incredible. But I, I don't know. I, yeah, and I mean, if I had known a pandemic was coming in three years, would I have decided this was a good idea to sink my life savings into something? Maybe not. But um, but I don't know. I I loved the chaos of it on set, specifically on set, like pre-production and post-production, I wanted to kill myself. But getting to set and knowing that no matter what, I have to shoot these 10 or 14 pages today and if disasters happen, it doesn't matter. I just have to find a way around them was one of the most relaxing and like Zen feelings of my life because like it had to get done. So the method didn't matter as much. It will get done. It's just a matter of figuring out how it will be done. Yeah. It rarely was a stressful 
the days on set at least were rarely stressful because it was like, it was fun to be like, well, we were going to shoot there, but there's a family fishing on the end of that dock and we can't kick them off legally. So we're going to shoot this in a parking lot now uh, and we'll just make it work. Like, all right, cool. Roll with it. Like that, that's great. The only thing that drove me crazy on set was we were using a lot, we were using a Ronin a lot, a, a stabilizer for the camera that broke down frequently. Like a, we used to call them a shaky cam. Yeah, it's a it's a rig basically that you wear the, the stable. I think I'm God. I'm my husband's gonna kill me. He's a cinematographer, and and this is all his equipment, and he's gonna murder me for getting it wrong. But yeah, it it broke down a lot, or just it was partly like mechanical and stuff wouldn't work. And there were several scenes where I was supposed to have four or five hours to shoot that I had 45 minutes to shoot, you know, and we had a really tiny crew who were all incredible and amazing professionals and working as fast as they can. But, you know, if we'd been able to hire double the people, it would have taken less time. So there's some scenes that I look at and kind of go, oh, why? If only I had had more time. I had to cut out. Because the first thing that goes when you shoot like that is anything that is visually interesting because right. it takes longer. You're like, all right, get coverage, get coverage, get a wide, then we're moving on. Like, there goes my cool 360 shot. Like, that's gone. You know, there's the movie you see in the head, your head in the movie you get. So that could be frustrating. But generally, like when chaos would happen, I was very chill about it. Way more chill than I was expecting. Was this your first experience directing? Like, have you directed theater? Uh, I had directed a tiny bit of theater. I directed a couple of plays in college, um, but it was the first time ever I had directed film. After this experience, you feel pretty like, uh, like you unlock some powers? I think I know what I'm good at and where I need to improve. I think my background in acting was incredibly helpful because I was able to talk to the actors in their language. And I think my background as a writer was, you know, and as the writer of the script was incredibly helpful because when a line wasn't working, I knew what to say that would convey what I was trying to convey, but be different words. And that was really easy. Visually, I am a nincompoop and I remain one and I am working on it because I've never been a visual learner. I am never the person who sees continuity errors or when the freight, I cannot tell what the hell the difference is between aspect ratios. <laughs> All of that stuff is a mystery to me, which was great because it allowed my cinematographer and my camera team to collaborate much more because I was very open to suggestions. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely learned what I am and I'm not good at. I think that when I was in film school, I thought that the director's job was to come up with crazy camera shots because I grew up with Martin Scorsese <laughs> movies. And, you know, it only was that, like over time that I realized how much more ephemeral a director's job is. You can leave this to the actors. You can leave this to the cinematographer. You can leave all these things. Directing film is conducting. Yeah, that's a good way. Like, I don't think you need to be a great visual artist. You'll probably learn, you'll probably pick that stuff up and get better at it and, and start acquiring your own your own style. But you can make a great movie with if you have a decent cinematographer and you just you just know the story. It's like so much of it is about the uh, the characters and just wanting to follow the characters into the next scene. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, so much of, I, I had a conversation, I, I dragged one of my directing friends, Julian Higgins, out to lunch before, when I decided to do this. And I was like, can you explain directing to me by the time we are finished <laughs> with, with lunch? And the, the most valuable of many things he said to me was directing is just subtext. What you're there to do is like the words are saying the things the words are saying, like what you are doing with the camera and what you are choosing to capture from the actors is the subtext of what is going on 
in the oh. scene. And I think visual language helps you with that because, you know, where you position a camera, how you angle it, how you frame people all says something about what's going on. And that was the language that I was totally an amateur. Oh, that's in. so interesting. I never thought of it like that. Before. Yeah. You know, like if you, if you put a camera up above pointing down at somebody, they're going to look smaller and more vulnerable. If you put it below looking up at them, they're going to look more imposing. Like you're, you're saying there's this whole speech of camera that I, you know, I knew existed, but like, I don't know how to create. It's so interesting. And you know, your style is what you like. So it matters what what is interesting to you. With this movie, my goal was to never feel the camera too much. I wanted it to be very naturalistic. Just because it was a low-budget production, it was always going to be a low-budget production. I'm not going to look like Spielberg. So, you know, it should look like what it is. There's only a few shots where it's like, I can tell I'm watching a movie. This is a movie shot. And I was very edgy about those. Because <laughs> it was like, is this too much? Is this too much? And everybody in the editing room was like, no! <laughs> Then the movie is coming out in May. Yes. And then what happened? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I hope to God people like it. I hope people watch it and buy it because I need the money. Is it going to theaters? Is it going? No, it's not. It's not going theatrical. Um, It'll be out on. They're still finalizing deals. It will be out on Amazon and iTunes and all of those in mid-May, whether it will also be on, you know, some other like specific channels is still up in the air. This might be a good time to re- be releasing an independent film because a lot of the big movies are going, getting uh, immediate Amazon releases or Netflix releases. Yeah. That breaks down some kind of a barrier between your small film and some Marvel film. <laughs> a very small barrier. Yeah. But, but it is. Like it used to be a little bit of a, uh, like a Scarlet A to go out directly to video. Yeah. It's not that anymore. It would be ridiculous to put this movie in theaters against Disney. I mean, this the movie was made for $90,000. Like <laughs> it would be, it would be silly. I don't know. I, I think we have going for us that everybody is desperate for content right now because we've, we've all watched the same shows 7,000 times in the last year. And also, God, I wish I could be hailed as a genius for this, but obviously I didn't know this was going to happen. The movie is entirely about the power of the outdoors and being out in nature. And God, have we been deprived of that so much in the last year. One of the, the, the one of the few directing choices I made was that every time we're inside, it feels claustrophobic and cold and sterile. And every time we're outside, it's like you're in Hobbiton. It's gorgeous and summer and warm and green and gold and beautiful and you just desperately want to get out there. So releasing in May when it's good hiking weather and people want to get outside and releasing when people are chafing at the bit to get out of our our dens and see the world again, I think might help us. I hope. I hope. (laughs) I'm newly excited for your movie now. Like I wanted to see it and now I have all this new information and now I know your face and like I can put all these things together and like, oh, okay. It's just going to give everything more context and it'll be a more exciting experience. I'm very excited for you to see it. I hope you like it. Uh, like, What's that thing that you're like really into right now? It doesn't even need to be movies. Like, What are you like? Is there some show that you're like, oh, everybody needs to fucking watch this show? Well, I'm in the middle of Ted Lasso. I actually have one episode left and that is one of the best shows I've seen. What is it? In the last decade. I am so madly in love with that show. Ted Lasso? What is that? Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, it's an Apple Plus show with Jason Sudeikis and Juno Temple. And it is about 
an American football coach, a college football coach who gets hired to coach an English soccer team. But what it is really about is taking somebody who lives a life of optimism and dropping them into a pool of people who are all hurt and cynical in some way and watching his influence spread. It's like dropping a a rock in a pond and watching the ripples spread across people. And it is one of the funniest, most beautiful shows I have ever seen. Really? It's just delightful. I don't know that. I don't even know if I've heard of it. Oh, I can't. Like, I feel like it's it's a big internet thing. I, um, it's just wonderful. The female characters are incredible, and they don't have to be. Like, you can see this could have been a hack stereotype, and it isn't. Or this could have gone a really sexist, weird direction, and it doesn't. Like, everything is so thoughtful. It reminds me a lot of like a Mike Schur show in some ways, like The Good Place or something like that, where it is, it comes from the idea that basic good is a good thing and it does everything with care. And it's just extraordinary. What do you think about the uh, the trend of prestige dramas being series now? I like it. I, I mean, I, I, I write both film and TV and I... I I think there are stories that are better told in two hours, and there are stories that are better told in 40 hours. The way we're doing series now where it's short seasons and stuff like that can be better for some stories. It's tough on writers just because employment consistency is is such a problem. But I, I don't know. If you have the story engine to make it a series, that's great. If you don't, it's wheel spinning for you know, eight of those 10 hours. And, and that's, yeah. that's a real problem. Or if you jump into a multi-season series and you only have material for season one, we have seen that does not work out so great sometimes. The Friday Night Lights uh, effect. Yeah, or game, or what happened with Game of Thrones where they, oh, yeah. they fell completely off the rails at the end. And uh, there were warning signs on that. You know, I am not, uh, I get in trouble a lot with uh, representatives because I can't pick a genre and also I can't pick a form. Like I tell stories in the medium that makes the most sense for them. And I hope that's what creators who get actually get paid uh, get the freedom to do is to make a movie out of an idea that is a movie and make a series out of an idea that's a series. I don't know. I mean, I'm just trying to think of what I can say to you while I have you on the line right now. I, I have, you're one of those people who I think I flatter myself, I guess, to think that if we lived close to each other, that we'd be friends. Absolutely. Just based on your sense of humor. And uh, so I'm just trying to think, okay, so I'm talking to my friend Jessica now. Can I, that's half of what the reason with this podcast is about. This is just me getting, tricking people into talking to me. I probably. think that's good. That's a great idea. I did one at the very beginning of quarantine that was very much the same thing. It was just like, I need to talk to other human beings. Like I love my husband and my dog, but I need to talk to other people too. <laughs> so uh, do you have your first, did you, Oh no! You, I was just reading. You had you. You are eligible now to get a vaccine, get a vaccination, but you just can't get one. Yeah, I have. I have a heart condition, so I'm. I'm eligible for my first. I stayed up all night uh, trying to see because last night in California it opened up to high risk people. Um, no appointments became available except about sixty miles away, which I'm a little nervous about just because of the allergic reactions. I don't want to be driving and die. Yeah. So desperately, desperately trying to get a vaccination because both my husband and I are high risk and we've both essentially been out of work for a year now because we can't leave the house. Hopefully this is coming to an end. I just, I I, I feel like we are in the waning days of a disaster. Uh, So I hope to God, because I don't, I won't have it in me if all of a sudden there's a 
the vaccine doesn't work or something happens and we have to have another year. And It's very scary. The idea of another mutant variant or the vaccine not working well against the variants or, or something like that, because we are, to go back to movies, programmed to think of life as a three-act movie, we are heading towards the end, right? Where it concludes and everything is more or less better again. Yeah, I think we're at the third act. We just lived through the low moment. You hope. There is no hope moment was like the January 6th and then all these... But now we're in third act and things are going to start. The, the hero is going to come in on a horse in a little bit and shoot everybody. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we pray. We pray we're not actually at the midpoint and this is going to get really dark. <laughs> oh, my God. Oof, we sure do. Will you come back on the show when What Lies West has been released and you can uh, report back with what it was like for to have a movie released? Absolutely. I, I hope something will happen. I hope I will have something to report, um, like a job or something. Um, but for sure, I would love to come back. You seem like too good of a resource to let be squandered. You're, there's going to be, you're going to get your in. Like there's, you know, you're banging on the wall and everything is hard, but you're going to find the soft spot at some point. So my therapist tells me every week. <laughs> that's what happens. I mean, that's how it usually works, unless you're Steven Spielberg's son. If only. Anyway, I have to go to get my son. It was fantastic talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to talking to you more on Twitter, and I really look forward to talking to you again when the movie comes out so we can we can discuss it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was a delightful way to start the morning for, for me on the West Coast. Oh, by the way, you're the first person on this podcast. I'm changing the name from Make Me Smarter to Smart Me Up. And you're, the, even though you're the fourth conversation, you're the first one with that I'm recording as Smart Me Up instead of as Make Me Smarter. Oh, cool. Oh, well, I'm very honored. That's a huge distinction for you. I just want you to fully appreciate it. <laughs> I do. So... That was a lovely conversation. If you ever get the opportunity to have a conversation with Jessica, I highly recommend you take it. I do not believe that you will be disappointed. And definitely check out her debut film, What Lies West. It's going to be available on May 11th. If you follow me on Twitter or any social media, I'll be bugging you about it anyway. So, But plan on it. By the way, you can find her on Twitter at baddest. Mama Jama, spelled exactly like it sounds. Uh, before we finish things up and I let you go back to your regular life, I just want to present a very short conversation I had with my friend Mike Ewing in which we reminisce about days when we were not quite so lame. I want to talk to you for the last podcast, which I just finished. In which I interviewed Michael Hurst. Do you remember him from One Ring Zero? Of course. Yeah. yeah. We were talking a little bit about uh, Brooklyn and uh, the idea. We started talking about Barbess, and I remembered that you did a, uh, a reading series there. Yes. For not, I, I don't even remember how long. It, it ended up not being that long. Like nine months, maybe at the most. Nine months? That's pretty, that's, that's a decent amount of time. Might have been six. I don't know. It was a long time ago. It's very cool. It was cool. Yeah, I really enjoy. I mean, I mentioned to you recently that suddenly a bunch of names had started popping up randomly of people who I'd actually hosted. Oh, right, right. Who is that? I was looking something up, and Ayun Holiday was one of them who'd done a bunch of travel writing, 
and I hosted her. Okay. Something I looked up recently, her she had written an article about whatever I looked up. Now it's terrible. I can't remember it. Somebody else, uh, Jeff Charlotte, who is, was involved with um, this documentary that's on Netflix about one of these uh, right-wing Republican Christian organization, The Family, I think. He wrote about them. It's this right-wing Christian organization in D.C. that brings in basically kind of young Republicans in training with a Christian bent. Mm -hmm. Sounds fun. It's really interesting. He'd written for Harper's and... I got to bring him in right when he, I think he was on his second book. Now he's like done a lot of stuff. Weirdly, since we talked, I saw this thing come up and cut me off at any time, but um, on an ultimate Frisbee group on Facebook, which I barely check, but happened to check this guy named Dave Hollander came up. Dave Hollander. I know Dave Hollander. Well, the name was familiar to me, and I couldn't remember why. And he has this new novel out and then an article about being kind of somebody that had a book that came out when he was 30 and he was going to be the next big thing and how he bought into his own kind of he wrote this essay, basically how he bought into his own bullshit. And then nothing really happened after the novel L.I.E. came out. And I'm asking my brother-in-law, who's a big Ultimate oh. Frisbee player in Chicago, and I was like, this guy played Ultimate. I was like, I think I might have played against him, or maybe I played pickup. I was like, the name was really familiar. Dave Hollander, is, uh, he, teaches, he teaches or taught fiction at Sarah Lawrence, I think, with Nellie Reifler. Yeah. So I couldn't shake the fact that it seemed familiar. So I went and ordered his new book at like my indie bookstore, paid, you know, uh -huh not Amazon prices to be nice. Cause I was like, this guy's trying to make it. I really like this essay about now he's like basically 50 having the, he's written four novels that didn't get published since LIE <laughs> thought of you. Oh, you thought of um, me. That's nice. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I know. Very sweet. As like hope, like there's hope. And then I looked up an email. I hosted him at Barbest. <laughs> He read. Oh, well. Wow. Oh, I'll bet anything Nellie set that up. I bet Nellie put you guys in touch. That's exactly what it was, I think. And I couldn't remember. And I was like, God, this is this is classic getting older. Not only have I met the guy, I hosted him at a reading 16 years ago. I forgot this, ordered his book just thinking, oh, I'll help this indie writer. Because it basically, someone described it as infinite jest if instead of tennis that part was said in ultimate frisbee <laughs> this new novel all right i got i got what do you know the name of it anthropica not gonna remember that i'll, I'll look up david holland I, was, I it's i just got the notification from a volumes bookstore here in wicker park that it uh it it arrived so i can go pick it up um and i will read it oh you I've still read books yeah you still read matter you read books with the kind of matter that you can hold in your hands. I, cause I'm not, I'm struggling. I read more when I actually have a book now. Oh, see, I, I read so much more with my Kindle, but that's, that's great. But whatever it is, I just, I think yeah, it's it like, I'm on my phone doing all this other stuff. It's like, I don't want to be staring at, I, cause I don't have a Kindle. My Kindle is old. Oh, well that makes, that makes Kindles? all the difference. If you have a, I wouldn't be able to do it with my phone, but the Kindle is its own dedicated reading tool so, so it's a book yeah i know what a, i know what a book is mike i know i'm just reminding you <laughs> I've, I've i've seen books before i i just 
choose to read them on my Kindle because I can carry a whole bunch around. I get it. I get it. I can read them in bed yeah, without my wife, uh, without having to leave a light on. I can just read in bed. It's all, no, it's great. I, I love it. It's, oh, whatever, really, another really good thing about it is if you're reading a book and it's got a thousand characters and then all of a sudden some name pops up and you're like, do I know this person? You can do a quick search. I agree. That part is great. And I'm struggling now because I'm 650 pages into Monte Cristo and I really love it. I've never read it. But suddenly I'm at the part where instead of it being kind of like three characters in like a chapter, suddenly there's like nine. And I'm like, ah. And they're like French names, right? Yeah, they're not like they're not like super hard, but like everybody because everyone's like got an agenda. Monte Cristo is the book that was featured in uh, Lovecraft Country, right? The Count of Monte Cristo was the father's yeah, favorite book. Yeah, you did some yeah. work on that show. And I was wondering if that connected dots um, for you. It hasn't so far. I think a lot of... Sh- it wasn't it a big influence on Shawshank too? Because it feels like the Shawshank... Well, it's got the scene where they uh, dig... He digs out, digs his way out of the uh Right, and just prison. being wrongfully imprisoned, that whole notion. Um, anyway, you know what? I do, uh, on another day... I have to, in a minute, go argue with my son about getting his uh, his math done. But on another day, I really want to talk to you about your experience having been a uh, actor on the final episode sure. of that show, sure. Lovecraft yeah. Country. It's uh, it's a fun experience. It was a fun experience. I wish most of it hadn't been cut. Okay, so that's that. Another episode down. Uh, no major fuck ups, as far as I can tell. Uh, I even got it in under an hour again. So I think we're good, right? I'm going to let you go now. Enjoy the rest of your day. Wow. What you eating, babe? Nothing, honey. Oh, you can tell me. Kellogg's Nut and Honey Crunch. So what makes it taste so good? Nothing, honey. Kellogg's Nut and Honey Crunch. Looks good, Private. What is it? Nothing, honey. You love the honey, you love the nuts. When you've got the special taste of nuts and honey all wrapped up in a hearty crunch, what more can you say? Looks good, Sergeant. What is it? Kellogg's Nut and Honey. Nothing, honey. Crunch.